Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape Podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined, as always, by Guy Adami and Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. Welcome, people. What up? We have a huge show. Guy and I had a great conversation late last week with Jeff Toporek. He is the Principal and co-founder at FD Stonewater. We talked about the constipated commercial real estate whoa, whoa, whoa. lending what? market. That was a term that he used, oh. guy. It was in his notes, and we had to go right there because it was actually interesting. I think it was a good use of the term, not the way that you might use it after we are doing a segment on, I don't know, Chipotle or something like that. That's a that's a term that we often use. But we also talked about the logistics market, deglobalization, reshoring, and and just really some of the investments that they're making, some of the trends that they are seeing. It was a great conversation. So stick around for that. We have a big week. I know that we're moving our way into year end. We have the Fed, the all-important last Fed meeting after the all-important last jobs report. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the moving yields. We're going to talk about just equities melting up. It's uh, I know, guy, this is going to get you all worked up here, but it seems like more and more of the financial press are using that term, the everything rally. And there's also some other terms that are being thrown out to describe what the Friday jobs report was like, but we're not going to say that just yet here. We got some earnings still, big software names and a huge, massive retailer here. Let's do it, guys. This is one of our last Monday pods of the year. Thoughts? Because we had the S&P, Liz, that closed at a new 52-week high. We have, if I'm looking at the options market, maybe you guys will find this kind of interesting. Okay, let's just do this for a second. The weekly S&P that's including this Fed meeting that starts tomorrow, ends on Wednesday. The weekly move implied in the S&P 500 is about less than one and a half percent. If I were to look at the money straddle on December 29th, okay, that gives me only a 2% implied move in either direction between now and the end of the year, the closing tick of the year. But look at this, the TLT, okay, that is the iShares 20-year 
treasury ETF, okay, the implied movement between now and year end, 3.3% guy. Talk to me about how we can be in a situation where the TLT implied movement is greater than that of the S&P 500, which just closed at a new 2023 high. Yeah, we've seen bond volatility outpacing equity volatility probably better part of the last two years, I would imagine, since the Fed obviously made that those comments in the fall of 2021 and then obviously subsequently moved in 2022. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me. What I've thought but have been wrong about is I thought at a certain point, bond volatility almost by definition would make its way into currency volatility, which we've seen, and then subsequently equity volatility, which quite frankly, with the 13 VIX, we haven't seen now People will say these zero data expiry options may be contributing to that. I really don't know. I can't speak intelligently about that. But what I will say is, regardless of whether or not that's impacting it, a 13 VIX, again, given the backdrop of all the things that we talk about, and then subsequently all the bond volatility just doesn't make sense. Uh, So you have to ask yourself, what is the problem? Why are people seemingly happy to be short of volatility here and continue to basically, you know, sell vol in an environment, quite frankly, where I think that they're, they're playing with fire. Guy makes a great point. In, in periods past where we've seen volatility in commodities and FX and, and obviously in, in the rates market, ultimately it works its way into the stock market. And I wonder if this is a bit technical. You mentioned this before we got on the VIX on Friday and what a lot of folks were, were like thought it was the best case scenario for the Fed, for the economy, for the consumer, for the markets. As far as that November jobs report, we had a VIX that was up more than 5% or so in and around 13 or whatever and very near multi year lows. Do you like buy into the fact that ultimately, if we are going to see all this volatility and other risk assets that are saying all whole host of different things that ultimately has to manifest itself in the stock market? It's interesting right now. It seems like everything's just operating independently from one another. You've got the bond market sending signals that things are bad. You've got the stock market sending signals that we're in the greatest expansion of all time. And the VIX is just sitting there on drugs in a catatonic state. The weird thing about Friday was that market up, VIX up. That's not usually what happens. Market down, VIX up is usually what happens. So I don't know that sends a very clear signal in either direction. But to Guy's point, there are just a lot of inconsistencies in the market. And there's a lot of signals. There's a lot of indicators trying to fight for that winning spot of I'm right, you're wrong. And we just don't know the answer to that yet. But the reality is, after that jobs print on Friday, that was after we got a preview from Jolts, we got a preview from ADP that said the opposite would happen. And then the official data came in stronger than anybody really expected, including the unemployment rate. After that, it's difficult to sit here and try to make a case and say things are terrible because it looks like right now things are still pretty good. And we've talked about this for the last few weeks. I do think the market can keep running through the end of the year. Yes, a lot hinges on the CPI report tomorrow. Yes, a lot hinges on if the Fed changes its tune on Wednesday. But if nothing big comes out of either of those, we probably stay supported through the end of the year. I think we said this last week, Christmas transcends everything. People are still spending. They want to be spending at any cost. And I think that we're probably still okay through December 31. Yeah. So guy, as uh, inflation expectations have come down, and again, not just readings, okay, like year out expectations, we've seen this surge in consumer 
confidence. And again, you've made this point again and again. I've heard you say it for 10 years, is that really when you look at consumer confidence, it's like an overlay of the S&P 500. And I know that you don't mean that they're that, they are very correlated, you know what I mean? But I guess the question is, is the tail wagging the dog? And, and you make the point all the time, it could stop on a dime. What I've said, again, and I believe this now, people have their own interpretation, but your point about the consumer confidence in the stock market, it's I'm not suggesting that everybody owns stocks. That's not my point. We know the statistics say otherwise. But what I will say is, I think a lot of people sort of have an understanding of how the stock market is doing vis-a-vis a number of different things. So whether they own stocks or not, if the stock market effectively goes up every day, which is what we've been seeing in large part, we are now through the levels that we saw over the summer in terms of the S&P 500 with winter earshot of an all-time high. So as long as the market does well, people make the following calculation. The stock market's doing well. That must mean the economy's doing well. And I know what my neighbor makes and he or she can afford that trip or car or Starbucks or whatever. I should be able to do it as well. There's this sort of cycle that goes on where as long as nothing is breaking, people feel empowered to spend. Of course, the problem is when things stop or the market has an event like we saw back in the fall of 2018, we've seen a couple times consumer spending will stop on a dime because when you start seeing on the evening news, stock market down 2%, and it happens over a couple of days, people say, wait a second, what's going on? Maybe I shouldn't go on that trip. Maybe I shouldn't go to that restaurant, buy that coffee, whatever. And that's when consumer spending stops. So this consumer confidence number doesn't surprise me. I guess the only sort of caveat to that is a lot of people don't feel great about the economy. But with that said, as long as the market does well, people will spend, in my opinion. Yeah. So let's think about that, right? So you just mentioned the unemployment rate back down to 3.7%. So you would look at that and you say the economy is pretty decent, right? Inflation is coming down. I'm looking at it through the lens of the 10-year US Treasury yield. We were looking at it at 4.1%. This was last week. And on that stronger than expected unemployment report, we have now a 10-year yield at 4.26, right? What if we have CPI data that's a little hot tomorrow, hotter than expected. And this goes back to that November 13th reading that we had that really sparked things, right? That was after that Nov 1 Fed meeting. What if we're going to have some sort of retracement from that like month and a half or so, and we have a 10-year yield on its way back to four and a half percent? At that point, where should stocks be? Because the last time we were at four and a half percent on the 10 year, we had the stock market much lower. It was 4,300. Here we are 4,600, right? So I'm just thinking about it in that regard. We might have volatility over the next couple of months in some of this data. And if we have yields that were at 4% at the end of August, they went to 5%, they came back to 4%, we might find ourselves somewhere in that 435, 46 range or something like that. And to me, I don't know how supportive that is for stocks at these valuations. You know what I mean? So how how are you thinking about that into year end? Let's assume that we just started out by talking about that the S&P, at least the the options market is implying 2% in either direction. Let's just say it's either side of 1% from here or so. How does that set us up in the new year with a rate environment that we might see the rate cuts start to get pushed out a little bit, right? They got pulled forward. If we start seeing pushed out a little bit, what does that mean for stocks? They already did get pushed out on that jobs data. You saw them not necessarily pricing in all of March. The way that I look at how rates are priced in and, and when cuts would happen is if the implied move is more than 12 and a half basis points, I count that as it's priced in. It's unpriced itself midday on Friday. So March was no longer the first cut. It got pushed back out to May. The interesting thing about the beginning of 2024 is that we skip two months right away of Fed meetings. So there isn't an opportunity for them to make a move every month 
month. So we've got this kind of protracted even Fed cycle that's going to happen. There's a meeting in January, then we skip February, then there's a meeting in March and we skip April. So it might end up being prolonged just because of the way the calendar works. But what I think would have to happen is what drove this rally in the first place? What drove it was that 10-year yields came down, two-year yields came down, inflation was coming down, and then you saw all those growth stocks really start, and then you saw the broadening out because people were worried about missing the rest of a rally, but they didn't want to take their money out of the equity market. So if we start to unprice rate cuts early in the year, I would imagine yields have to rise, and then part of the rally that we've seen since early November does have to be given back. That doesn't mean that we're going to have this big drawdown, but I do think that Right now, we're priced for rates to continue to come down, inflation to continue to cool. So if there's a tick back up, I think we do have to, we have to see a reversal in some of these gains. And Guy, you know, in a whole host of industries, as inventories have come down, as companies have done a better job dealing with the kind of after effects of the supply chain disruptions, first from COVID and then from the Ukraine war, it's interesting. I think that's something that a lot of investors have actually felt really good about. I listened this morning to a podcast with Mark Esper. He's the former defense secretary in the last administration administration. And it was interesting, kind of his take on what's gone on with Russia and Ukraine, what's gone on in the Middle East, what could potentially go on with China and Taiwan. And the message that was very consistent throughout all of them is that the Taiwanese should be stockpiling right now, because I'm sure the Ukrainians wish they did. He's also a hawk on Iran. Okay. And so when he thinks about that, so he is in support of Ukraine, he is in support of Israel, and he's in support of the Taiwanese, okay, being a, a much stronger front for if merely for a deterrent standpoint. And if you were to think about how inflation got really out of whack in 2022, after we all felt like COVID was pretty much in the rearview mirror, right? If we were to have some of these geopolitical situations start to get dialed up, and one of them obviously could be China and Taiwan. And you've made the point, I think, we talked about it on last week's pod a little bit, or we've been talking about it for months now. The Chinese economy is weak. There's deflationary readings all over the place. We know how much the global economy has relied on them in general. Who knows what sort of actions they might take in the new year? Who knows what sort of fronts could open up as far as in the Middle East in this you know war with Hamas between Israel? And at some point, we are going to see either an all-out aggressive push by the Ukrainians to get as much aid as possible in anticipation of a spring offensive, okay? And we know that I think Biden invited Zelensky this week in front of an aid vote. So at some point, my question, in a long way of saying this, Guy, is might we see a massive inventory restocking on a whole host of different items that could be inflationary for the globe for a number of different geopolitical hotspots? That's an interesting podcast. If you listen to Esper, he's a brilliant man. I'll say this, you know, the Chinese historically stockpile, but they've been doing it in levels we haven't seen for the last couple of years. They're ahead of this curve in terms of what you're talking about. And quite frankly, you have to ask yourself, what are they stockpiling for? And I think I've thought for a while. Now, this has been incorrect as well. And I'm surprised that I'm not that I'm wishing for it to happen. But you know, I think there's this inevitability to China and Taiwan in some form. And if you just listen to the rhetoric out of President Xi, he seems pretty dug in in terms of his feelings about Taiwan and what it means to China. So what does it mean for the global inflation? Well, let's put it this way. It's not deflationary, right? It's not a good thing necessarily for inflation. If I look at it through the lens just of the stock market, there's no preparation for this whatsoever. And I think there's this sense, as long as there's no news, 
Why try to get ahead of something that may happen when you can be in front of something and sort of ride this wave? And I think that's what people are doing. Now, of course, there's the thought behind that is they'll be able to get out in time. We'll see if that's the case this time. Yeah. And Liz, what are your thoughts? There was one year out inflation expectations. They seem to be dropping like a lug a a little bit here. And how important is that versus a headline CPI that we're going to get versus expectations? And we just got through Q3 earnings season and visibility is a term we use a lot, right? A lot of these companies, when they're not willing to give guidance much further than a quarter or give guidance at all, lack of visibility should be something that weighs on a stock or at least from a valuation standpoint. And we talk about all the time this idea in front of an earnings event, the implied move, the more visibility, the more color a company has given, right? You know what I mean? The less expected volatility there should be. And I think we are living in an environment, at least on the corporate level, where a lot of them do not have a whole host of visibility. But if you think about the geopolitical backdrop that we just described, it also is one of those things that seems to be in flux here. And so I'm just curious, like, again, with the VIX at 13 and the 10 year where it is and all this sort of stuff, like what's being priced in right now for the lack of visibility that we have headed into 2024? I think the lack of visibility and the rally that's happened just speaks to risk appetite of investors because you pull that visibility closer and you've got companies coming out, third quarter earnings, not giving full year guidance or pulling full year guidance and only comfortable talking about the next quarter or maybe the first quarter of 2024. So I think there's probably a bit of recency bias going on where, okay, things were better than expected in 2023. That's probably going to persist into 2024. That may or may not be the case, but if investors don't have anything else to go on, that's what they're going to buy on. And there's obviously appetite for risk-taking. The thing about inflation expectations, you have to think about it this way. The Fed is really obsessed with inflation expectations. They talk about keeping inflation controlled, not letting it get entrenched. What does entrenched mean? To them, it means inflation expectations are under control. So if inflation expectations are coming down, that's going to satisfy the Fed over time, and that's going to send them the signal that they've got things under control. Your question about headline CPI, the headline is what people are going to answer something like the University of Michigan survey on. You see a headline that inflation is coming down. You get asked questions about how you feel about inflation. You say you feel great about it. The reality, and this is going to be in my outlook, the reality is if you look at the cumulative cumulative effect of those non-negotiable categories. So things like food, shelter, transportation, and energy. The cumulative effect since 2019 is that all four of those categories are up over 20%. If you look at the cumulative effect of wage growth, now, if prices are up over 20% in non-negotiable categories and wages are up over 20%, that's probably okay because you're absorbing it. Wage growth was up, but it's up under 20%. So there is a gap between what people have made as an increase versus what they've had to pay as increased prices. And as we've talked about over and over again, inflation has just slowed down. It has not reversed. So the headline CPI number makes people feel good. The reality of what's happening in their bank account, not so great. The Fed is going to be satisfied with inflation expectations. So there's this pretty big mismatch about what's really going on the ground, what the Fed is going to use to run policy, and what people are thinking and feeling is actually going on. Guy, let's just use that term, investor appetite for risk. And there's two headlines, and I think you're going to have opinions on both of these. Occidental, okay, is buying a private 
shale driller, okay, for what, $12 billion is a private company. Really interesting. And then another one was Macy's. An investor group is looking to pay $5.8 billion. This is a company that has over $6 billion in debt, just to be very clear, for that company. So they're going to pay over $20 a share for it. And it was just trading at about $10.5 a month and a half ago. Okay. So when you do the math, like on, on something like that, and you look at an oxy, and we've talked about this name a lot, we've talked about the MA in the space, it looks like there is investment appetite for deals right now. And so uh, just give me your take on that, seeing those two headlines over the weekend. You're not suggesting there's any similarities here. There are only similarities in there's deal making taking place, which historically has been a good thing. The Macy's deal to me reeks of a group that's going to come in and probably gut the entire thing, maybe become some sort of real estate play with some sort of restructuring of debt. We'll see. I tweeted it last night. This is eerily reminiscent of Gordon Gecko's play for Blue Star, where he comes in pretending he wants to save the airline only to sort of break it up. So we'll see how that plays out, number one. Number two, in terms of Oxy and the energy space, it's fascinating now this is the third company in that space that have made or at least signaled acquisitions over the last month and a half or two months. Whether or not they come to fruition or not, I don't even know if that's the point. It's the confidence that they have which to do so. In one regard, I think it's a great sign that there's this unfreezing of deal making. The flip side of that coin is I think they're extraordinarily specific to both the company in the industries. Liz, this was a headline that kind of caught my eye last week. Ken Mola sees huge backlog of deals after Fed's rate hike regime. And it's interesting, Guy, I don't know if you were on the show a few weeks ago, but Julie Beal, one of our co-panelists, she pitched Molis as a company. She's a small cap investor and she looks at value. She said, here's a company that has not cut costs versus some of its peers in the space. And they are getting ready for this period of aggressive M&A and the like. And that's something that we could see in 2024. And Guy and I remark about this all the time. We sit there and put our M&A banker hats on when things look really nasty and no one wants to buy anything in the public markets. Deals never get done at those sorts of levels, right? For any reason, they get done really as people are starting to feel maybe overly confident about whatever sort of period they're about to enter into. There's two different types of M&A. There's strategic M&A and there's financial M&A. If we're seeing deals happen and the general gist is that companies are being overpaid for, then I think the risk appetite issue is pervasive right? You've got companies that are maybe overvalued, getting taken over at a really high price. That's something that would be a warning sign. I don't know enough about the specific companies and some of the deals that have happened recently. That airline one is the one that comes to mind most recently that I think people really thought they were overpaid for. Every industry is going to be different. But if you start to hear about M&A from a standpoint of more financial reasons, and that could happen in certain sectors and not others, that's when you start to worry about, okay, now companies are being saved, right? They're needing to be rescued. That probably doesn't happen, though, until we're in the depths of something bad. And I haven't we haven't seen that yet. We really have not seen a ton of those types of deals. So the idea right now is the deals are going to happen for strategic reasons. And this is a healthy indicator. And the IPO market might be back and the M&A market is back. Like there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of chatter about that. One of the things and and this is going to get guile turned up. But one of the things that I tweeted last week, I, I don't remember if it was Thursday or Friday. It was a headline from November 29th, 2006, basically saying Fed sees a soft landing coming. It wasn't even just the headline. I read the whole article. You could literally replace Bernanke with Powell, you could just change the dates and republish that article and nobody would know the difference. It's exactly the same stuff that we're looking at right now. There was some statement in there. Fed is confident that they can keep bringing inflation down without tipping the economy into recession. Now, I am not by any means suggesting that we are heading for something like what happened in 2007 and 2008. But 
the whole point of that was to say, we always talk about soft landings before we know whether or not it's a soft or a hard landing. And we're in the same spot right now talking about the same indicators, the same concerns. Everybody thinks that it could get pulled off and it could, but this time is probably not as unique as people want to believe that it is. Let's hit some earnings here. We're not done with this earnings season. Tonight after the close, Oracle is going to report, guy 6% implied move in the options market. This stock was trading very near an all-time high three months ago when they reported, disappointed, gave a weak outlook. The stock gap down 13%. That's a kind of big move. The stock is a $300 billion market cap company, a lot of recurring revenue. We know that it seems like every cycle they are pushing to demonstrate how they are there, whether it was this move into whether it's this move into AI, data centers, like public cloud, all that sort of stuff. Stock has rallied almost 15% guy in the last month and a half or so. Expectations high. We've seen some kind of diverging results from some of these kind of second tier players as it relates to cloud and AI. Expectations there. And then later on in the week, we have Adobe that also has an implied move of about 6%. Are these two names important to you? Both about $300 billion market cap companies. They're both important for different reasons. I mean, Oracle, I I guess, you know, in terms of valuation, maybe it's a little more reasonable than some of these other companies in the same space. If you want to compare it to like a Salesforce, I'll say this. Obviously, that last quarter was interesting in so much as I think it was September, early September, stock to your point, Dan, was making, believe it or not, an all-time high for Oracle, which is remarkable when you put it in the context of where this was back in the heyday. And then it fell off a cliff. I think it went from sort of 126, 127. I think it printed 100 bucks. But we've gotten about half of it back. Valuation, not unreasonable in this environment. We're going to push towards that level again. Do we fail for the third time or do we push through? I, I think at this point, you're flipping a coin, but I think it's going to be interesting to hear the commentary because obviously last quarter wasn't great. Adobe to me is fascinating because valuation is clearly expensive. It always is. I think 35 times next year, a stock that I want to say made an all-time high in November of 21, sold off, has gotten the lion's share of it back. We're probably within, I don't know, Dan, what, 12% of another all-time high? So Keep your eye on this one because the potential to make a massive double top, I think, exists. So, Liz, Guy and I are struggling with this on the single stock front. Normally, as one of the like main inputs that we would use to differentiate a stock versus its peers versus its history versus the broad market would be valuation. And in theory, it's like that. No one cares. So Guy just said that Adobe is trading at about 34 times next year. So this is a company that's expected to have 13% earnings growth, 13% sales growth, 89% gross margin. Okay, trading at 34 times in an interest rate environment like this. But most importantly, let's say on the cusp of harnessing one of the most important technologies, right? Like the world has ever seen. And I say that in jest because this is a company that invests and has been investing billions of dollars in machine learning and around their products and services for years, right? So AI to a company like this, yes, there are new technologies right now that are like getting investors excited, getting product people excited and all, but there is not right now any evidence of this amazing commercialization, which makes a company like this that has had 88 or 89% gross margins for years growing double digits, that it's going to accelerate revenue growth or profit growth in a way that should justify a higher multiple. But you can say on a PE to growth or whatever other growth metrics, it's expensive, right? To itself, to its peers and to the market, but people don't care. And that's one of the reasons why Guy and I are trying to be a little bit careful of putting too much emphasis on valuation. Thoughts on that? Valuation, as, as I think all of us know, and probably most people listening know, is a really bad timing mechanism in the sense of telling you whether or not you buy the stock today or sell the stock today. 
What it is good at, though, and this is absolutely consistent through time, if you look at something like the Case-Shiller PE and you chart that over time, what it's good at is telling you what the, let's say, 10-year return expectations are going to be. If you're making a bull case and the argument is over the long term, just draw a chart of the S&P, it goes up and to the right. That is true, which means that you're probably more focused on a 10 to 15 year time horizon. If that's the case, overpaying for a stock today does not suggest great things about that return potential. And if nothing else, if you're overpaying today over a 10 to 15 year period, you might actually underperform the broader market if you pay too much for it in the moment. So something to think about. The other piece of it is just like Christmas transcends everything right now, AI and tech is transcending everything. There is so much exuberance over how this is going to change the game for everybody. People are still trying to pick the winners and the momentum is just moving in that direction. I think that this is a theme that obviously is going to change things. Are we going to get justification of those multiples by March? I don't think so, but it's something that I think you just have to let the clock run on. You have to let it run itself out. You have to let people get into stuff until it's overextended and then it comes back down to earth. That is how most of these things go. Any new theme, any new stock, any new industry, you have that boom and bust cycle before it settles into where it rightfully belongs. Yeah. All right. Last one before we get out of here. And this is actually tying a couple of those themes that we just talked about with those software and the valuations and expectations and relative value to peers. Guy Costco reports, I think Thursday after the close, implied move about 2.7% in either direction. It's generally not a big mover. It moves about 2% or so at a new all-time high. And you and I were talking about the chart and we'll probably throw it in the show notes here. This could be the mother of all double tops. Huge move here. This is not true trades at about 40 times 2024. Okay, that's fiscal 2024 earnings estimates. Expected to grow, let's say 9% on about 6 or 7% sales growth. Okay, just do the math versus Walmart, which is also expected to have 9% earnings growth in calendar 2024. Okay, that slower revenue growth expectations, but we know that 3 or 4% of Costco's revenue is recurring, right? And it's a very high margin sort of business and that membership fee. How do you think about a name like this that trades nearly double the PE of something that we would think is their largest competitor for all intents and purposes in Walmart and the like here, because that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense to me. I think they get rewarded because I think they have a 94% rate of return in terms of that subscription or what whatever term they use for their customers, which gives them visibility, which allows the market to attach a higher multiple. But at a certain point, even with that visibility, the multiples get a little extreme. And I think that's where we are now. Again, we've talked about it. it's a great company. We're not knocking Costco or any of these companies. All I'm knocking now is the valuations and the expectations around those valuations. Think about it. In order to maintain this level, they have to do extraordinary things. And I think we're getting stretched here as well. And we've seen it with a number of different retailers. I get the have and the have nots. And Costco is one of the haves. Of course, the market is rewarding them handsomely to be so. New all-time highs there, pal. All right, people, we covered a lot of ground this week. When you think about it, CPI, you think about that Fed meeting, we have a couple of big earnings. We covered all that. Once we get by that with no big hiccups, to your point, Liz, the idea that you probably have a little bit of a melt up into year end makes some sense. I'll just say this, that this is not me throwing in the towel on what was a bearish call because a month and a half ago, it looked like the S&P was on its way to being unchanged on the year when we had the Russell down on the year. We had the equal weight S&P 500 down on the year. And so if the everything rally, there it is, guy, right before we get out of there is just predicated on a move in the 10-year going from 5 to 4.25% in a month and a half when the 
yield wasn't even like for that long above four and a quarter percent. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I feel like the higher we melt up into year end is the harder we drop in Q1. And I think that a lot of things that I'm seeing remind me a lot about late 2021. And we know what happened in 2022. So we will see. So thanks for being here early on a Monday morning. People stick around. Guy and I had a great conversation with Jeff Toporek. He is the principal at FD Stonewater. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. And today, Dan, we're joined by Jeff Toporek, principal and co-founder of FD Stonewater. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Before we get into it, University of Michigan grad. The final four, whatever they call it, just came out. Michigan's been the best team in the country all year. Once again, beat the Ohio State University. But I think the NCA said, you know what, Jim Harbaugh, we're going to get you because we're going to match you up against the Crimson Tide of Alabama, which right now might be the hottest team in college football. So how do you feel about things going into this tournament or whatever they're calling it? I always hedge it. I'm always going to root for my team, but going against Nick Saban is no picnic. None whatsoever. It's going to be interesting. And the under-the-radar team, Washington, which I don't want to say they dismantled Oregon, but that was a great football game, and then throw Texas in the mix. So they're back, Dan Nathan. Yeah, they are. And I think Texas is dangerous. Yeah, Texas is dangerous. This this year was obviously makes the case for the expanded playoff, right, to 12. And that will actually be very interesting. Should be. But then, you know, you go to 12, and then it's going to be the 13th team is pissed off dating. Anyhow, Anyhow. here we are with Jeff. So I want to hear about the story. I want to hear about 
about what you're doing. But before we get into it, tell us your background. I obviously mentioned Michigan, but how you've gotten to this point, Jeff? Sure. So after graduating from Michigan, I did the training program at J.P. Morgan here in New York. I was there for about two years, and this will date me a little bit, but I worked on their two, their first two CMBS transactions. So this is post-RTC really coming right out of the thick of it in 1994. And then I went to Eastill, which is a real estate investment bank also based here in New York, and really focused on complicated transactions all around the country. Most of my focus was on secondary markets. And I was there for about eight years. And then we started our firm in 2003, really first started on the principal side with our first investment strategy really being single tenant opportunistic, where we were taking a really active approach to what's really meant to be a passive investment class coupon clipping. And that's been the basis of what we've done on the investment side for about 20 years. Uh, But the firm has grown at this point. We're 10 partners, privately held company based in Washington, D.C., 43 professionals, and we really build everything around niche businesses. And really, our three main business lines are we have a federal consulting group where we really act as a team around the country for the largest owners that have the federal government as a tenant. We attract and retain the federal government. Then we have a development business where we do really complex built-to-suits for both federal and state governments, as well as corporate built-to-suits. And think about complex transactions where it's FBI headquarters in Atlanta or Coast Guard facility in Corpus Christi or VA clinics. And so that's a really big focus for us. And then on the investment side, I mentioned our single tenant program. We just launched a fund last December. That's an evergreen fund for that. Listen, I think you know our background, and we spent a lot of time talking to investors and strategists, and a lot of it is focused on the public market. So when we have the opportunity to sit around or sit down with someone like yourself, who you guys run operating businesses, you invest, you you, you touch lots of different parts of the economy, but it seems like 100% probably interest rates affect a lot of what you do. Now, we're always trying to glean things from people that we're speaking to about the direction of interest rates, what it's in, you know impacting or how it's impacting their underlying businesses. Give us a sense for this volatility that we've seen in rates over the last few years. What has that meant for your business? And maybe try to put it in some context because you've been investing and you've operated in lots of different cycles over the last, let's call it two plus decades. Yeah. So I'll hit on three things. So there's tremendous constipation right now in the lending market. Banks are basically completely running on fear of just making a mistake. And they really can't afford a mistake because they're all very heavily scrutinized by the Fed right now and the FDIC. And there's a lot of shoring up of capital because they're seeing a wave of distress really coming. And it could be office related or what have you. All right. So can I interrupt for one second? So do you really believe that they see a wave coming like of distress? Because that's one of the things I think that a lot of us like who are commentating on a day to day basis as we work through the regional banking crisis in the spring, a a lot of folks felt, okay, the feds came in, they backstopped deposits. Right. But on the other side of that will be distress in some of these areas in in the credit markets. And, And so is it your belief that the regulators are are very fearful of this? I do, and it's causing an extreme backlash, right? Like in the financing market today, we talked about our, our corporate built-to-suit business. You would think that a 15 to 20-year investment-grade credit lease would be a slam dunk to in, get financing in today's world. 
And it's just not. Everything is difficult. They view it as development, which gets you another nick on you have to have more deposits. They don't care whether it's pre-leased. It just goes into a separate bucket. So the stringency at which the Fed is looking at this stuff and overseeing it, especially if they're seeing a book of business that they're worried about that might collapse, they're forcing sales, basically. And you've seen it with some banks where all of a sudden you see a billion dollars trade and you're like, oh, why did they just do that? They need to because a lot of these banks are just not getting paid off on, on their loans. So they can't recirculate the capital, which is really causing the constipation. We've seen this around the edges. Like there's anecdotal stories here and there that sort of come out of nowhere. But I'm not looking forward to, but I've been waiting for that cascade event where it all unleashes at once. Is there an inevitability to that? Or is that something that you're thinking about? So I think there are a few things that are going on. If you have unhedged interest rate risk and you have a loan maturity, you're going to have a problem. And actually, one of the other things I was going to mention is one of the opportunities in the market is we have capital markets expertise where if I can look at when my hedge is expiring and there was a moment in the market where there was three to four weeks Mm -hmm. where we actually called our banks and said, hey, we want to put a forward hedge on something that starts in 2025. At the time, it was a dumb question I thought I was asking. I didn't even know you could do that. And they're like, oh yeah, we could do that trade. And so we locked it in. I'm in the business of risk mitigation where I don't want interest rates impacting volatility and what my returns are going to be. And so if I can take that risk off the table, I sleep better at night. My investors get what we are telling them that they're going to get. I don't want to make upside and I don't want to have tremendous downside by being naked on that risk. Let me ask a follow-up question on the back of that. In an environment that you've worked in now for 30 years plus, when interest rates were zero, money was free, did you have to walk away from certain deals because just the outlandish multiples or premiums that the market was putting on things, knowing full well that you're going to miss a few things? And with that said, as interest rates have gone higher, when you have an expertise, it probably actually lends itself to exactly what you're doing. This is probably a better environment now than it might have been five or six years ago. Yeah. Today, you can lock in your basis, which I think you're going to have upside to when interest rates stabilize. Are we going to go back down to zero free money? No, and we shouldn't, right? We should have some level set basis, but should it be over five? No. Should it be closer to three? But to get to your point, we had a really painful point in time in 2006. We started to see the CDO market, which we were seeing 80% leverage at 10 years interest only. That was, you were manufacturing your returns. So we looked at that and said, no mas, we're not buying. And I know Danny Moses is part of the show and I give him a lot of credit. We saw the wave coming purely because of the irresponsibility. But in what we do on a daily basis, we couldn't make a trade other than just not buying. And we actually started selling a bunch of stuff. So it was pretty obvious to us that wave was coming, but we literally had to sit on the sidelines and buy nothing for two and a half years. You have to be able to sustain that and to be a disciplined investor where you're seeing that mountain of potential volatility and irresponsibility, frankly. It's, but now you have an opposite reaction, right? Where it's like, interest rates are way too high, but you have this underpinning of the economy that's really driving real growth. 
And those two things are very much competing. It, so is it an underpinning of the economy or is it just a lot of fiscal stimulus? Because you probably see a lot of areas of, of just a lot of the, the fiscal that we've seen over the last few years in both administrations that are probably benefiting your end markets. Yeah, I attribute it to a, a confluence of a lot of factors. You have the pandemic hangover where there was just free check writing, like just dumping $100 bills out of airplanes. And then you really have two wars that were unexpected. And so that drives inflation. You have the supply chain movement because of what these geopolitical issues are happening right now. And so this confluence event is really creating this regionalization of the global economy. And that by definition, creating all this manufacturing growth and what have you is really generating the the economic growth. And you have really low unemployment. I, I looked at it this morning, and because I'm still just so blown away at how low unemployment is, on a 10-year basis, we are at like an all-time low with the exception of COVID and a very short time during the GFC. And so if you have, like when I was growing up, like healthy unemployment is 6%. Yeah. And 3% is almost like this artificially low basis of like where we shouldn't be. So we have to fix that. Now, whether that comes from technology or policy change where we make those changes, that's going to be a battle that we're constantly fighting against inflation. Going back to the lending and, and the credit environment and the aforementioned Danny Moses, Danny is particularly worried about non-bank lending right now. That's been something, and it feels like every day we read a new article about private credit, and then you see another comment by a traditional banker, CEO possibly, who don't like the playing field right now because they have far less regulation. There's, it seems to be like they are being opportunistic given the environment and such. Talk to us a little bit about that. Do you think that there are trouble brewing in, in the private credit market? Honestly, I don't think so for them. But as a borrower, it makes it really expensive. Then think about that. We actually have a project I could walk you through right now. It's at a border town. It's a manufacturing company that's related to home building. And they are growing that facility purely because the labor market is so good. I did What I did know when we bought that building is that 40% of their labor force comes from across the border every single day. They just did a study and they are basically making this a signature plant. So we're gonna expand that facility by a third of the size purely to accommodate their growth. And to get a loan on that, and it's gonna be a 12 to 15 year lease, you would think that's pretty easily financeable. And we're the only lenders available are the private credit lenders. Now that cost of capital gets passed along to the tenant through rent. There's no way for the landlord to absorb it. They're just gonna pay a higher rent than they would have. And it's probably at this point in the fluctuation of the market has our cost of capital on a blended basis just to get to 68% leverage is close to 11%. Think about that. That's Danny's contention, though, too, in a way is like there might not be like balance sheet risk for these non-bank lenders the way there was, let's call it, in the regional banking crisis or going back to the GFC. He really thinks that if you are being forced to borrow at those rates right now for this sort of project, and let's just say you have some sort of economic malaise, we go, we finally do go into a recession, then default rates are going to rise. That, right? like, that's absolutely a real risk. 
And do these lenders really want to be owning that real estate? Probably not. But look, realistically, it, even if there is malaise, you would think that liquidity would come in in a stronger form. You can't really have both where you have malaise and locked liquidity. Right. Like you have locked liquidity where we're technically not in a recession. The, the economy seems to be doing fine. But you have a real estate constipation in terms of lending. And it's not just real estate. You have it across every industry. It's interesting. People will look and say, okay, rates are only, let's just say 5% for sake. So they figure banks are making loans at these levels when in essence, banks are stepping away and private credit is stepping in. But something that I've been mentioning for months is they're not going to step in at the same level. They're going to step in at that 11% that you just mentioned. That has implications without question. We can talk about that maybe another time. But dovetailing into your business, logistics is a big part of this. And we are so, I know personally, you're very New York centric and everything's through the lens. Meanwhile, around the country, and we talked about this before this show started, a BMW, for example, that made its way into South Carolina a decade or so ago, whenever it was, seemingly out of nowhere, turned out to be a genius move. And more and more, you're starting to see those types of things pop up, which I think creates a tremendous opportunity for you. Yeah. And we're spending, we spent two years, we actually hired someone from the logistics world to really help develop the business plan. We're really a niche strategy company and we didn't want to just follow the big money to where all the primary industrial markets were. We were trying to find where can we get conviction over something that was sort of emerging. And so inland ports and, and nearshoring was really that. And what you're doing is sucking away the volume from where the main port is you have a good labor pool and you can actually bring in the raw materials from the ports. You assemble it in these inland port locations and you're going to have this major system that's going to really go from Mobile basically all the way up through the mid-Atlantic that you're going to be able to, you know, get goods around the country and out of the country, more importantly. I've been saying this for probably a year or so, but I think in the next five years when these inland ports are up and running, the U.S. might actually be a net exporter. And the regionalization of the global economy where you're going to have major foreign companies have not just BMW, it's Mercedes, it's Kia, it's Hyundai, it's all these companies are here. They're building big items that for every one completed item that they were shipping, if the raw materials come here, they can complete two to three. And that's a massive savings. And they're closer to their end user, whether it's in North America or South America or Central America, where those goods are going out. We talked about it before the show. You guessed pretty close to the right number where 80% of these cars are getting exported. My original guess was 20%. But you have agricultural equipment like Kubota, and you have the battery manufacturers, and that is just going to benefit the U.S. in the long run. And a lot of it's happening in the Southeast. They're welcoming automation. They want the higher skilled jobs. And when you look at our employment, we talked about employment before, like that should be welcomed in the country. 
Like we need to get more efficient if the labor force is not going to be growing to the point where we need it to grow. You, you talked about re- regionalization of the economy and, and some of the things you just mentioned. They all sound really inflationary, right? So is that so? Let's talk about that as a backdrop because we've spent a lot of time talking about reorienting supply chains over the last few years. I'm saying away from China, right? And so it's ironic in a way. Like 50, 40 years ago, a lot of U.S. multinationals, manufacturers, they went to China for the cheap labor. Like what ended up happening happening over the next 20 or 30 years is access to their consumer ended up being a huge bonus. And so when you think about now reshoring a lot of these jobs here, again, for a whole host of reasons, will be inflationary. So I'm just curious, like, how are you thinking about that as you look across a lot of these different areas where you guys are exposed to either operating or investing in? Because again, it seems one more geopolitical dust up and it just makes another case, right, for reshoring, reinvestment in the U.S., which is great for us, we made, I guess you'd call it a devil's bargain 50 years ago, that we were going to ship the manufacturing jobs away in return for cheaper goods. And that seems like that's being turned upside down on its head right now. A hundred percent it's being turned upside down. And you're alluding to what no one really wants to talk about, which is a third dust up. And if China decides to go into Taiwan, that is going to wreak havoc. And it's just going to push things into more of a situation where we have to be able to manufacture here or it's in Vietnam or it's in India. Even if it doesn't come here, it's inflationary just to move the manufacturing to another country. It doesn't even have to be here that's inflationary because you have to build the facilities. And so that cost of building new facilities is getting passed on through the goods anyway. You had a BA in organizational behavior. So you think about these things, right? And He hasn't he, thought about it since he well, graduated. But you start to game out, yeah. what would I do in a similar situation? Like we look at things through the lens of being American because that's what we do. But we never, unfortunately, I think, you never look at it through the sort of the lens of your adversary, your opponent. Like how are they thinking? And what is the potential for something. And I've said this incorrectly for a while, but if you see what's going on with China and we're taping this here on Tuesday, just so the folks know that Moody's downgrade of China, all these things to me add up to a weaker China, but typically when countries are weak, the route they go is just sleight of hand type of thing and then have some escalation with a foe. So the worst things get in China, I think, and I'm curious to your thoughts, I think the more likelihood something happens with Taiwan. I think that's right. And when you see the U.S. resources getting thinner and more spread out, it makes it almost appealing for China to say, we're not going to get this opportunity Mm -hmm. again. And so if we don't take advantage of it now, when is going to be our next shot? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, And it's easy to say, okay, so the U.S., the resources are strained, obviously, Ukraine, Russia, and then we have obviously what's going on with Israel in Gaza. The only thing that I would push back on a little bit is that I think that the dismantling of the supply chains in around consumer electronics, whether it be Apple, whether it be semiconductor manufacturing, whether it be Tesla and this huge opportunity there, I just think that it actually goes away that China does not want it to do. When you think about the lead that we have in, let's say, in AI, for instance, right now, I know we were just talking about this before we started. You're reading Chris Miller's Chip War right now. And it's a fascinating book because we had him on the pod, I want to say a few months ago or so. And I also read it. It goes back before 
before the Cold War and, and talking about these technological shifts. And, and it seemed like the U.S. was always ahead, right? But the Russians caught up pretty quickly in the space race for a whole host of reasons. And so we're kind of at a point where if we really did see Taiwan and manufacturing isolated for chips, it goes away from China altogether, in my opinion. And I'm just curious how you think about that, because I think now more than ever, China relies on a lot of foreign companies manufacturing in China, but they also rely on for technology advancements right now. And they They, would lose out on that to some degree. They do. And they have to look at it from both angles of you want to be collaborative and you don't want to just take over something that basically the world needs. If 90%, according to Chris, if 90% of the chips are getting manufactured in Taiwan, there is going to be a shift. Whether I have an opinion on it or not, the U.S. government seems to have an opinion on it, right? You, you, You pass the CHIPS Act and we have a built a suit that we're working on right now where you have a defense contractor that is got a contract from the U.S. government to build chips for our military. And that's not just supply chain, in my opinion. Well, it's national security. We've been talking about this for a long time. I mean, it's probably one of the most important, but uh, like under like appreciated sort of piece of legislation right here. Listen, and to be fair, I mean, the Trump administration was going in this direction, too. They're the ones that originally slapped a bunch of these tariffs and started talking tough and everything like that. But when push came to shove and they went up to Wisconsin to start building the Foxconn thing, nothing ever happened. You know what I mean? So hopefully this legislation is part of that impetus. And hopefully people like you, Americans who are putting other Americans to work or financing these projects are going to make it happen because that is something that has not happened in manufacturing here in decades in America. It's really interesting. We recently just started going into the built to suits for corporates and we went from government to defense contractor really because it's one standard deviation away. And we have half a billion dollars worth of projects going on that are directly correlated to national security. And we won those projects because of our 20-year track record of having built really complicated projects for the government. And the government's choosing groups like us that they know that can deliver. We've got to deliver one facility in 12 months. That's like unheard of. Like Chris was on the show saying, I think you may have actually said it, where it could be three to five Mm -hmm. years before a facility is up and running. That's not happening. It's going to be way faster. And why do you think that is? It's not an accident. So I I think a lot of this is being driven. Like we could say it's political. It's really not. It's economic. It's economic, but it's also for our security. Our security is economic. And it's interesting. And I got a question on the back of this comment. But one of the bull cases for Intel, forgetting about valuation, is the fact that they could become this tremendous homeland security play with everything they're trying to do here in the United States. So that's something to keep an eye on. When we talk about commercial real estate, typically we use the word monolith and we look at it through its commercial real estate, but there's some bright spots out there as well, without question. So for every bad story you hear, there's some really good stories. So maybe you can enlighten us there. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because we were talking about office space before. And look, everything is getting swept up in this broad brush of like office is just like a complete disaster. Now, we're sitting in Manhattan and I grew up in New York. If you're a mid-block building in Manhattan that has no amenities and no presence and you just own the building to just compete on cost, that is a really tough proposition. Now, we own a lot of buildings in secondary markets where it's not urban And if you're in an urban environment where you have socioeconomic issues that are going on, whether it's San Francisco, parts of Chicago, downtown LA, 
those are real struggles. And I don't know, I've spoken to a lot of the smartest minds in leasing. And we used to have the business improvement districts here in the Plaza District. And it took 10, 15 years to clean that up. That got eviscerated in two years. So how that's going to come back, I think, is going to be a real challenge. But these secondary markets where suburban office was a tainted word for 20 years, we own a fair amount of that, and it has performed remarkably well because we amenitized them, we urbanized them, we created this hospitality environment, and it's closer to people's homes. So post-pandemic, that's sort of where they want to be. We had a building in Evanston. We've leased that through the pandemic. Rates have increased. We've got a, a great little micro market, but it's a tale of does that get swept into Chicago and everything that's going on in Illinois where no one cares about that story? I think that's going to get weeded out where that doesn't get swept up. People identify that like, okay, that's a great project. Long term, you weathered the storm. I think we just have to be really careful in just saying office or these, these broad brush comments just drive me nuts. The municipalities must love what you guys and gals do if you think about it, because you're coming in. I don't want to say the distressed properties, but they're properties that need some, as you just said, they need some amenities and need to be sort of gotten into the 21st century. Is there a relationship there or am I way out of bounds? I think you're giving it a little too much credit. I, I wish there was more cooperation. Look, municipalities, when they need something done and you're helping them solve a problem, they're great to work with. But if you're an owner, you're not going to get any special treatment. They have their agenda and they're going to go by their agenda. And sure, we've got great local relationships, but I don't know that they give the credit where of what we're trying to do in these communities of create great places that are generating jobs where people want to come to work. Because our view is we've never viewed our role as this adversarial landlord-tenant relationship. If I can make my tenant successful and partner with them, then I'm going to be successful. Go back to organizational behavior. If you have alignment of interest versus an adversarial relationship, you're both going to succeed. And that's how we view it. And that's how we try to partner with the local municipalities too. So Jeff, a big trend, at least in public markets for us, and it's something that we've commented a lot on in, in, in its market structure, it's the rate environment, it's a whole host of other things. But the idea when it comes to investing is active versus passive, okay? And it's really dominated a lot of the flows that we see. And we go back to the days we've been, Guy and I have been you know, in our businesses for decades now too, and it was a very different business when we started. How does that play out, I, I think, in your markets a little bit? Because flows are flows, right? And they're trying to find the best returns and, and, and the like here. Is that a dynamic that is, is something that, that plays out in your business? A absolutely. I think in today's environment, and the one thing I learned at Eastill for sure was capital flows trump everything. I don't care what dynamic there is. And there's a ton of capital on the sidelines. And what I've seen in my career every single time, when there's this perceived opportunity for distress, all the big names go raise a ton of money. They say that they're going to get these extraordinary returns and they raise the capital and then it becomes hard to deploy because that wave of distress isn't nearly as bad. So is there going to be financial distress in, in this climate? Possibly with loan maturities. Is there a use 
distress issue as it relates to office? Yes. But is it going to be broad brush all real estate? No, because the rate environment's impacting every industry. From a perspective of an active versus passive investor, we've seen this our entire career. It's one of the easiest ways to differentiate yourself where you can just roll up your sleeves and get dirty and really provide a great outcome for your investors and your tenants who are really your partners. They're, they're our clients. And by really looking at when we buy a building, understanding their story and what they're trying to accomplish and how we could partner with them. We have this single tenant program where single tenant investing was traditionally looked at as you buy it, you clip a coupon, you forget about it until the lease expires. I don't care if we own a lease that has two years left on it or 15 years left on it. We are looking to partner with that tenant from day one to try and help them be successful. If it's a mission critical asset, which is typically what we focus on, then that business and that building is really important to them. And so how can we, with our company and all the different things that we do, how can we help them succeed? So we have an asset, I mentioned the one in Arizona, where our development team is going in there to expand that building for them. The tenant's not in the real estate business. They want you to come to them with a fully baked solution from a capital market solution to a physical solution and get it done for them. And so providing that expertise really helps differentiate us, especially in a passive investment class. How can our listeners or viewers find you, FD Stonewater? Where do they go? They can go to www.fdstonewater.com and they can always email me at jtoporek at fdstonewater.com. Happy to answer any of their questions. Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. Hopefully, we'll see you in Miami at the end of January, and we'll certainly have you back. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.